This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audiobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. And this chapter we entitle, Let's Get Serious. Okay, so Shecky and I, my good friend Shecky, um, my best friend Shecky and I, travel across the United States and have our little adventures and really enjoy seeing America. Yeah, but we finally get to New York about a week later and uh, drop off a whole bunch of equipment at Steve Gruberg's office. Steve, of course, being my other best friend and the guy who I'm crashing with. And now we're going on something like, oh, maybe six, seven months, something like that. I'm also working for him as well. And we're, what I'm doing, actually, is I'm editing shows and commercials. All right? Let me explain this to you. You know, if you've ever been to New York in those days and you turned on uh, uh, the channels in, uh, in New York City, you would come across a channel, and I think it was Channel 35, uh, where there were these shows that had nothing but sex commercials on them, one right after another. Well, a lot of that time, about, oh, say, seven hours a night worth, were Steve's. And what he would advertise are basically uh, phone sex services, you know, where you would phone in and somebody would uh, help you jerk off, or in some cases, actual escort services. And so they didn't have commercials, they didn't have advertising agencies, but they needed somebody who could run commercials for them and make commercials for them, so that when you bought a commercial with Steve on his shows, uh, you also had a commercial made for you. And that was my job. My job was to put together the commercials. Uh, they could, as I say, be anything from an escort service uh, to uh, the prime thing was the, the phone-in sex lines, okay? And I would sit there writing them, producing them. Then Steve would come over and see them and see whether he liked them or not. Steve was a, uh obsessive-compulsive and may I give you a piece of advice? If you ever have a chance to work for a obsessive-compulsive, do not. One of the reasons is, is that nothing is perfect. Is that, is that phone number right in the middle of the screen? And then he would get a, a ruler, and he would go from one side to the other to see if it was exactly in the middle. And he said, yeah, but it is on that monitor, but it's not on that monitor. And I said, that's because we're using imprecise monitors, and on certain monitors they skew, skew to the right, some skew to the left. If you get want to go out and buy yourself a $3,000 monitor, we can have one that's absolutely accurate. So that was the kind of, of arguments we would wind up having. Not how good the commercial was. Oh, the commercial's terrific, but don't, don't you think that, that that person should be a little more over to the left? You know. And uh, that, of course, um, on many occasions, drove me out of my mind. Now, you got to remember, Steve is my best friend. He and Shecky. And uh, out in California, uh, my friend... Um, um, Bruce David, and um, uh, he, he's like my best friend, and I'm staying at his place, and, and he's been very good to me, but to work for him was nuts, you know, and I, I often worried that working for him was going to make us not like each other rather than maintain the friendship, but happy to say that after this was all over with, we went back to normal, but being an employee is different than being a friend. 
and especially with Steve, who was very, very demanding. Steve was a great guy, but he had a lot of faults. And, and, and you know, I've met a lot of people in my life who uh, are just assholes, right? And so we just write them off as assholes. And then there are people who can be assholes, but basically we love them. And in the case of uh, uh, Steve, everybody loves Steve, even in spite of his just enormous amounts of problems, his obsessive compulsiveness. He had a weight problem that he constantly dealt with and, and constantly tortured him for his entire life. I kept telling him, Steve, you know, you're fat. That's it. Live with it. You know, either that or really lose some weight. But if you're not going to do that, then learn to live with it. Come to terms with it. Be happy with it, you know. Buy good clothes. Don't let the, the weight bother you as much as it does. And so uh, um, Steve had a lot of faults, but you had to love the guy. You just absolutely had to love him. And uh, so I worked this job day to day, day in, day out. I would, uh, I would come in at uh, oh, about 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, or I would come downtown with him. He would take a car down, and uh, I would go with him. And then I would stay till, oh, I don't know, 7, 8 o'clock at night because, you know, all I had to go back to was a place that wasn't mine. So I kind of tried to stay out and give them some room. And so I would come in maybe at 8, 9 o'clock, and then I would go into my a little it was a what it was was a guest room they had that was also used as an office and it had a fold out bed and i that's where i slept for a period of i think we counted it to be about 9 months um you know it's it's really hard to have good thoughts about yourself when you're not working i know cuz i'm feeling that way about myself now but we'll get into that later if you're working if you have a job uh, if you're making some money, uh, you get to feel pretty good about yourself. But when you're not making money, and with Steve, I, he was paying me a salary, but it wasn't very much. But it was enough to kind of take care of my overhead. And uh, but it wasn't it wasn't very much. And um, I just you know I just felt was getting to feel very bad about myself. And feeling bad about yourself also makes it worse than you finding a job. Because if you're going to go find a job, you want to go in and you want to be Mr. Positive and all of that. And I was up, as I say, for like three jobs, one of which didn't happen, which was Air America. Well, thank God it didn't happen because you know we all know what happened to Air America when it fell apart. But Let's get back to the other jobs that I was going after. I was doing some part-time work at WOR thanks to a good friend who I had kind of gotten to know while I was out of work, and his name was David Bernstein. And David Bernstein liked Alex Bennett. He remembered Alex Bennett, what Alex Bennett did in New York, and we got to know each other, and we talked with each other a lot on the phones. This was out in California. And now he was bringing me in to do some part-time work at WOR. So, you know, you, you always hope that if you're doing some part-time work, and they're bringing you back and back again, that, uh, well, you know, um, maybe there'll be something there for you. He also brought me back because I was good for publicity, because all of a sudden, here was the press in New York City going, Alex Bennett returns to New York. It wasn't a big return. I was just taking over a show run by a guy by the name of Lionel. 
um, on a station that once had been a great station but was starting to kind of falter, as it were, in the ratings and falter in its reputation. And it hadn't changed much over the years, and so therefore it had problems. But what I loved about going to WOR was this. WOR is maybe the oldest radio station, or close to the old. I, I may be wrong in saying this, but I think it's close to, if it isn't, the oldest radio station in New York City. Uh, I think the first one was probably something run by RCA. But they, uh, you go into the studios, and these were still studios that I remember having visited uh, back in the, uh, in the 70s when I would go over there to do programs, okay? And these studios probably went back further than that. And uh, on the walls were all the pictures of, like, their first studio in New Jersey. And uh, just, it kind of is like the history of radio. And, I, you know, me, uh, more than just being a broadcaster, I love the history of broadcasting. And I love the people who've been involved over the years in broadcasting. And so to work in this atmosphere, where a lot of great people had worked, and the history of broadcast radio in... Uh, in New York City was made, and some of the greats appeared, to just walk into those studios and sit down. And I would sit down in a studio, okay, where, you remember I told you the story, uh, did I tell you the story? I guess I did, about going on the Barry Farber show when it was there years earlier, and debating Roy Cohn, the infamous Roy Cohn, the lawyer, uh, he was Trump's lawyer probably, uh, later on, I think, after I met him, or maybe, you know, maybe he was Trump's lawyer while I, I did this little debate with him. And, and remembering that Roy Cohn uh, was one of the most evil people I've ever met in my life. This was the guy that was responsible for finding the Rosenbergs guilty and having them executed. Uh, he was just one of those unrelenting people that had no guilt and was just, he was just a terrible human being. And we had this interview back and forth. And I, if I've told the story before, please excuse me. But I looked at, at Roy Cohn and I said, how do you feel about the fact that you got the Rosenbergs executed? This, this was that couple who were accused of stealing uh, secrets about nuclear bombs and things like that and probably the only people ever killed in this country for that, okay, executed for that. And he looked right back at me and he said, I feel very good. And I went, you know, if there isn't a devil, uh, maybe I've just met him. Uh, but I remember that when all of a sudden when I'm doing the show in the studio, hey, I think this is the studio where I debated Roy Cohn. You know, so that's that's how I felt about WOR. I love the fact that I was doing a show on WOR, even if it was a replacement for Lionel. Uh, but, it was, you know, uh, David was very good to me that way. Now, the other job I was going after, and the one that I guess was the only one that showed a lot of hope because there were infinite amounts of possibilities at this new place, was a place called Sirius Satellite Radio. Uh, I had gone. I had, of course, met up with this guy named Walter Sabo. He had been. He's. He had been a consultant most of his life. Although he had at one time run, I believe, the NBC networks, and we became good friends. And Walter became kind of a mentor to me, saying, "You know, if if you you should be working at Sirius, 
And the one thing about Walter and Sirius was he was a very high-paid consultant at Sirius. So he kept saying, hey, you got to get Alex Bennett, you got to get Alex Bennett. But they had a problem. And their problem was this was early on in the game, and they didn't have the money. Uh, you know, every time they wanted to do something, the money just wasn't there. I mean, they were strapped for cash. I mean, sending up satellites is an expensive prospect. But then when you add to that the fact that they got themselves on, I think it was the, uh, uh, on two floors of this big office building in Rockefeller Center. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine what the rent is on that space. So anyway, Walter would take me up there from time to time and, and just he says, walk with me through there. You've got to be seen there. That's what, you, what you've got to do. And he would introduce me to people and so on and so forth. And finally, he introduced me to this guy, and his name was Jeremy Coleman. Jeremy was in charge of programming at Sirius. Now, I had met Jeremy once before. It's amazing how, you know, the people you meet on your way up, you meet on your way down, and you also meet on your way sideways. And, you know, people keep reoccurring in your life. He had been one of the people that I called when I was out of work. And this was maybe back in 1997. And uh, he was the program director of WNEW-FM. And he was the guy who was the boss of Opie and Anthony. He was running the show over at uh, WNEW-FM. And then, as you remember, I lost to getting a job because Opie and Anthony did this stupid thing with the church and having some people screw in the pews at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And not only were they fired and were gotten rid of by WNEW-FM, but so was Jeremy Coleman. He was almost a sacrificial lamb, you know I mean? You can only watch out over your programming so much, and then, you know, if something happens, uh, you didn't cause it to happen. So I always kind of felt sorry for Jeremy, but he lost his job, and he was out of work. So he went over and got the job as the head of programming at Sirius Satellite Radio. So uh, I said to him, look, I really want to work here. And he said, well, we'll see what we can find out for you. Now, give me a call in a couple of weeks. So I gave him a call in a couple of weeks, and he said, you know, we got a real problem over here. We really don't have the money, but we're, 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 we're looking for it, and we're, we think we're going to be able to get some. Uh, call me back in another couple of weeks. And I called him back in another couple of weeks, and I got the same story. And I called him back in another couple of weeks, and I got the same story. This became a, uh, a ritual with me, and I, I, I always, you know, I'm very shy about certain things, and one is being a pest. And uh, my friend Steve said, you got to be a pest. That's the only way you're going to get a job is by being a pest. Did you call that guy today? I said, I called him yesterday. He says, call him today too, you know. But I, I'm shy about that. I don't want to, you know, overstay it. And this thing was going on for so long with the same put off, like I don't have enough money, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough money, I can't get you the money for this. And um, uh, I, I thought to myself, God, I got to do something about this. I, you know, so I called up Jeremy and I had this inspiration and it was maybe the stupidest inspiration I've ever had in my life, but it was an inspiration created out of desperation. And I called Jeremy and I said, Jeremy, and he says, I got to tell you again, there is no money. I said, no, that's not what I'm calling you about. 
I said, I, we, you, we, you've mentioned that many times to me. Do this for me. Let's get together and have lunch. No, I, you don't even have to pay for it. It's not like I'm starving to death. I just want to sit down and make a proposal. And he said, sure, be happy to do that. You know, he was always very nice to me, and he was always very friendly and very accommodating, and I honestly believe that he couldn't come up with the money. You know, he couldn't convince people, hey, I need some money to go bring this guy in. So he, um, he made a date with me to have lunch. And the plan I had and the offer I was going to make, to me, is almost kind of mythic. You know, this is the kind of story you tell when you want to have a myth about somebody. So if you're going to have a myth about me after I'm gone, let this be part of the myth. So we sit down for lunch, and here's my, I have a harebrained scheme. Uh, and uh, uh, we, we eat a little bit. I think we had sushi or something like that, and uh, right near the station, right near Sirius. And um, I, I, he, I said to me, I said to him, now here's what I want to talk to you about. And he says, well, what? I said, look, we've talked any number of times. You tell me how you don't have the money to hire me. He says, it's right. I said, I really want to be on the radio. I said, so I'll make you a deal. I'll work for nothing if you give me the advertising. He said, what? I said, give me the advertising. In other words, give me all the advertising time. I'll go out and sell it, and that's how I'll make money out of this deal. And uh, you can have me for free. And he said, when do you want to start? I said, three weeks from now? He says, fine. Let me go back, just make sure all is okay, and we'll draw up some contracts. And eventually they drew up the contracts, but they only gave me, gave me half the the advertising time. Now, let me say this to begin with. I'm no salesman. Hell, if I was a salesman, I probably would have been working a hell of a lot earlier than this and for a lot of bigger organizations. But I'm not a salesman. I'm, the worst thing I am is selling me, okay? And uh, so I had no idea how I was going to sell the time, but at least I had it. Maybe I could find somebody to sell it for me or whatever, but that's where I could make the money. Now, uh there's another guy involved in all this, too, I should mention. Actually, I, I can't remember if Jeremy Coleman's uh, title was program director or whatever, but the guy who was really in charge of the programming, I guess vice president in charge of programming, I think that's probably what it was. I, I, you know, these titles at these companies just kind of start getting to me. Everybody's a vice president, but everybody's also a programmer or a program director, program director for this channel, that channel. But anyway... The guy I was trying to get the job from was Jeremy, but his boss was a guy named Jay Clark. Now, Jay Clark I had run into years earlier when there was this thing in L.A. called Comedy World. And what it was was a 24-7 radio network serving up comedy programming with people like my friend Bobby Slayton. Now, I may have mentioned this, too. I have a hard time remembering what I mentioned and not mentioned but uh, I eventually didn't get a job there because I wanted uh, $300,000 a year, and they choked. And I said, if you can't afford that, you know, because I already, I already, this was my specialty, comedy, okay? So if, if, if they said, we want you to do a political talk show, I would have said, how about 75000 because I got to work, right? But I said 300000 because this was, this was my, this is the one thing I had to sell. Well, anyway, Jay Clark was one of the heads, one of the guys who ran Comedy World. 
So when I first met Jay Clark, I had very little respect for him. I never met him in, in the—I may have met him for a second or two when I was dealing with the comedy world thing. But uh, and now, uh, here I meet him. It's serious. And, of course, immediately I don't think much of him uh, when I first met him. I met, Remember I told you that we'd had a, 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 di- a dinner together, and he told me that they didn't have uh, uh, room for me at the table. At the at that point, even though they flew me into New York to interview me, all right. So I've got Jay Clark there, and I'm you know, in as the years went on, I came to love Jay. I mean, I came to respect him, and I came to love him. I think he got in as many bad situations in his life with broadcasting as I got into bad situations in broadcasting. But anyway, so I now start at Sirius, and they say to me. Listen, uh, you need a producer. And we've got this one guy we've, we've been promising a job to for a long time as well. Uh, and he's really a good producer. And, uh, you know, if you have no objection, we'd like to have him do your show. And they said, well, bring him in and you can meet him. And who I met was a guy by the name of Albert Reynoso. Now, I didn't know a thing about Albert. All I knew was that he'd worked radio for quite a while, that he was a producer in the business, uh, and uh, he had been around, all right? Uh, and uh, so I said, okay, I'll take him. Now, that was maybe the most fortuitous thing and the mo- most uh, decent uh, uh, decision I've made in maybe my entire career because what I wound up with was the best producer I'd ever had in my career, and there was a reason for that. He was a professional. I mean a real professional. This guy, when he would put together a show for you, I came in every morning. There was a uh, a sheet with all the news stories of the day on there that he had put together. He came in early to put it together. It was what we called my prep sheet. And uh, um, I would have it there in front of me and I could just read this thing and know everything that was happening. And when it came to guests, uh, he made sure they were there on time. And, I mean, he he went, he went wasn't that good at booking. That was his one weakness. He didn't, I don't think he liked to book. And booking means you go out and you chase somebody. You want Jimmy Carter, you go chase Jimmy Carter. You go chase this guy, chase that guy. I've had better producers than Albert when it came to getting guests in the studio. We became very lucky because Sirius suddenly... Uh, had a main booker who started booking people on our shows, okay? So he really didn't have to do that at all, and he was just as happy with that. But that was his one major weakness. His major, major thing was very funny, very inventive. He made up like little spots and things like that for me. I mean, stuff that really was absolutely amazing. And... Uh, uh, I just, I, I just think that he, he was, I, I was just amazed from the moment I met him at how good this guy was and how professional. There was one other little thing, though. We seemed to hate each other. We did not like each other very much in the very beginning. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't know. I think I, I sense that it had more to do with him than with me. Uh, that he was a bit combative towards me. Uh, He didn't seem to really like me. He did enjoy doing the show, and he did the best job he possibly could. But it took us 
several, maybe two years before we really warmed up to each other and suddenly realized that we become a very good team together. And somehow when you have somebody that's kind of adversarial towards you, it makes you work better. And uh, God, he just the best producer I've ever had. And I only wish that I could get another radio program and he were available and I could have him sitting on the other side. Because it got to a point, and we did this. for This lasted for nine-plus years, okay? We got to a point where the two of us could mind-read each other. I mean, I'd do something... He'd know what I was going for. He'd cue up some voice track or whatever that was needed for the situation. And and that was it. Or we would wind up doing something funny together. And he his timing with my timing just worked perfectly. I can't express enough how much Albert's input to my show made my show as great as it was. Without Albert... Even to this day without Albert. It's not what it could be if Albert was here producing it. So that was maybe the most valuable decision I've ever made. And a decision in which this person kind of became, you know, you talk about going to work every day and the people you work with being an extended family. Well, he was kind of my extended wife. I mean... Every day I would go in, and there he was. And, you know, we wouldn't see each other much outside of work. I've never never seen that happen, where you work with people doing this, and then in off hours you hang out with each other. That just doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen because you, you see each other already for four or five hours a day. If you're working a regular job, you see those people eight hours a day. You don't need to see them when you're not at work, so they're your extended family. And he was kind of in a way, I, I, I don't want to say in any sexual way or whatever, my wife. So I, we were now working at Sirius. And um, it, was, it was going pretty good. I, everybody at Sirius seemed very happy with what I was doing. I had a program director, another program director, by the name of Dave Gorab, who was very supportive of me and was always you know, saying how great the show was and how happy he was. But there was a problem, and the problem was I wasn't getting paid. Okay, so uh, there's this thing um, called the Talkers Radio Conference. It happens once a year. It's done by Talkers, what was Talkers Magazine. It's now a website. And uh, they said, you want to go? We got an extra ticket. And I said, yeah. So we all went out and we had a little dinner first. And uh, Jay Clark was there, the big boss. And um, uh, he says to me, he says, as we're walking to the conference, uh, he says to me, you know something? We really got to pay you. (laughs) He said, this is ridiculous. He says, you're too good not to be getting paid. He said, I'm going to find a way to do it. And a few weeks later, uh, he called me into his office and he said, um, how much you want? And I told him and he said, well, how would such and such sound? I'm not going to give you the prices right now. And I said, what? Because the price he gave me was $25,000 more than I was asking for a year. I said, that would be just fine. He said, okay, I think we can do it. He said, 
starting next week, you're a salaried employee with all the, the benefits and everything else of Sirius Radio. And so that's how I came to work at Sirius Radio. I worked for nothing. Worked for nothing for three months. And then they offered me a salary. And I stayed there for nine years plus. But that's more story coming up next time. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.